You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. As a part of our sermon series on the local church that we've been doing over these last few weeks, and we decided uh, last week to split up this conversation on church discipline into two messages. One, last week we looked at understanding God, uh, who disciplines us, both in our sin and even through our trial, not because uh, our trials are always because of our sin, but because in all of our trials, and even in response to our sin, God is working to make us more like him. Um, and, and to understand church discipline, we need to understand the God uh, who himself disciplines uh, us. And so today we come uh, to, to really looking at practically uh, both the purpose and the, and the process of church discipline and what that means and why that's important to, uh, to understanding a healthy church and what it means to be uh, a healthy church. And so um, you tell me if you've ever heard these kind of statements. These are a few different types of statements, but who are you to judge me? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge? Well, I guess that's between them and God. Or maybe, you know what, I'm not going to get in their business. Or maybe stay out of my business, right? Um, <clears throat> there, there are these kind of statements that reflect often a, uh, either uh, an unwillingness to receive correction or a fear of giving correction. Um, and then on the flip side, have you ever heard this statement? Christians are such hypocrites. They say one thing. But they live another way. They're hypocrites. They're no different than the rest of us. They pretend to be holy, but they do the same thing as everyone else around them. Sometimes they're even worse. See, those, those kind of two different categories, both the, the unwillingness to be corrected or to, to give correction, as well as the testimony at times of Christians being hypocrites, uh, really introduce both a lie and a danger. The, the lie is that we're not responsible for one another in the body of Christ. The, the idea that we might say to each other, uh, who are you to judge me, or that's between them and God, actually is an affront to what God tells us in the body of Christ, that we are indeed our brother and our sister's keeper. But the danger is that we would neglect the purity of the church, either because of convenience or fear of man. You see, the bottom line is no one likes to be corrected and, and confronting sin isn't exactly fun either. Um, and either because of convenience or fear of man, we just tend to put these things off. And at times, when the, when the testimony is that Christians are hypocrites, the truth is the church has been unfaithful in loving their brother or sister in Christ to pursue them in their sin. The, the truth that I want us to understand today is that we are responsible for one another's growth and holiness. We are responsible for one another's growth and holiness. We, we are indeed, as I said, our brother and our sister's keeper. We, we are responsible for one another. We bear a responsibility to one another in the body of Christ. This is part what we, we talk about when we have described church membership and what it means to belong to a local church. Uh, we, we, we really describe church membership basically as you're making a commitment to a body of believers to love them and walk with them in their pursuit of Christ. And then in turn, that body of believers is making a commitment to you to come alongside you to love you and help you pursue Christ. 
it, it's, uh, it's, it's, when we say it's more, being a part of a church is more than just attending a service, but it's belonging to a family. It's what we need, that we're committed to one another. We, we care for one another. We have a responsibility to one another. And sometimes the crazy uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters that can rub us the wrong way and be annoying, or, or maybe there's somebody who goes AWOL in the family, like we have a responsibility to one another. There are no small people, insignificant people in the body of Christ. There's no, uh, there's no one that you can write off, that you can assume doesn't matter. In the body of Christ, we're responsible for one another's growth and holiness. And this means that we pursue discipleship and we exercise church discipline. And so this flows out. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 12. We said God himself disciplines his children. And, and he does it uh, in these ways. He disciplines us out of love. His, his discipline in our lives is evidence that we are his beloved children. And he does so so that we might be holy. We might share in his holiness. It's actually an invitation to draw close to God and, and be in relationship to him. That's what holiness is all about. And the aim in all of that is that we would be restored and strengthened and, and healed. Uh, that God is doing all of these things, either sometimes correcting us in our sin or as we go through trials, he's producing his character in us. In all of that, his aim is to strengthen our weak and our tired hands and to, to make straight our path so that we can follow him. And if God, call, if God himself is a God who disciplines us out of love and for our holiness and for our restoration, then we as his people, it follows, should be a people that discipline one another out of love for our holiness and with the aim of restoration. And so I want us to consider today what it means to be a church that disciples and disciplines. And I, I say disciples and disciplines because they're really uh, really two sides of the same coin, if you will. Not only are they similar, disciple and discipline, at their root, but discipleship is best understood as an aspect of discipline. Uh, and, and in fact, there's, two, there's kind of two ways in which we should talk about church discipline or think about church discipline. I want you to think about it in terms of formative church discipline and then restorative church discipline. What do I mean by, by formative church discipline? Formative church discipline is, is really just the, uh, the, the ongoing process of the Christian life, the continual encouragement that believers give to one another to grow in holiness. Uh, we, we spur one another along to love and good deeds. We help each other love God and love others. We uh, help one another repent of sin. We help one another walk in obedience to God. We, we, we've been talking about in our equipped class Christian formation, uh, how we uh, hear God's voice in his word. We uh, talk to God in prayer. We uh, enjoy God in relationship to others in community, how that changes our time and how we live on mission and uh, think about our money and all these things. It's, it's the process in which we help one another become fully formed followers of Christ, where we say, okay, the, 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 the desire is that we would grow up into maturity into Christ. And so we then look at each other, and our, our baseline uh, kind of expectation towards one another is, I want to help you grow to be more like Christ. Now, of course, we're not all going to like uh, have one-on-one -on -one discipleship with each other every week, right, where we meet and go through something. But there's this overall commitment to one another, um, and that along the way, there's going to be different types of relationships that are formed, formal and informal, uh, regular, irregular, in which we're always seeking uh, to help one another grow in Christ-likeness. Formative church discipline, when you look throughout the scriptures, I'm just going to mention some passages of scripture for you to, to say why this is essential. Matthew 28, we're going to look at the Great Commission next week to understand the mission of the church. But it says, in part, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And there's some ways we do that. Teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And the good news is that I'll be with you even until the end of the age. The call that Jesus gave us, our marching orders as the church, as followers of Christ, is make disciples of all nations. It's a, a call to, to know and follow Jesus and help others do the same. Like, that's, that's our job. That's, that's our privilege. That's our responsibility. That's our joy to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to follow him and help others follow him. And, and in fact, in Acts 14, uh, there's a passage there in, at the end of Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. Paul, in his first missionary journey, he and Barnabas, they went through and they preached the gospel in a bunch of places. Uh, crazy story. They get stoned, almost left for dead, and then Paul gets back up and he goes back into the town and keeps ministering. And, uh, and they move about in all these different places, but they end up going back through the places where they had preached the gospel. And it says that they made disciples. They went back and they gathered those believers into churches and they appointed pastors in those churches and they strengthened the believers and they encouraged them to follow Christ and they taught them God's word. It really is a picture of what we are doing as a church plant, what I think every healthy church ultimately should seek to do to multiply itself through sharing the gospel, through making disciples, through strengthening believers, through starting churches, through establishing leaders who then keep on making disciples. That's the call. That's, that's what we want to be as a church. We, we are doing that and we want to continue to do that and multiply ourselves to do that in other places. Um, and then and then first Timothy four it kind of digs in more to the interpersonal dynamics and it says that you should train yourself for godliness. Training in the physical sense is, is beneficial in some ways, but training in godliness is beneficial in every way. Because when we train ourselves in godliness, it's this ongoing process in which we grow in our knowledge, we, we grow in our affection. For God, we grow in our skill of serving others in the body of Christ and others around us. It's, it's more than just believing the right things. Training ourselves in godliness is also living in faithful ways and obedience to God. So who doesn't need help both growing in their knowledge about God as well as in, in their affection for God, as well as in practically what it means to actually do it in practice? We all need help in the body of Christ to grow um, in, uh, in godliness. And then 2 Timothy 2.2 2 and Titus 2 are these two passages that kind of help us see the, the relational intentionality required for making disciples. Titus 2 says, Paul says to Timothy, what I've entrusted to you, entrust to faithful men who will be able to entrust and teach others also. There's this pattern of passing down the faith. And Titus 2 talks about it in terms of the relationship between older men and younger men and older women and younger women, that there's this responsibility we have to one another to intentionally help each other, whether formal or informal. Uh, frequency can change, but we have this responsibility to help one another grow in the faith, to pass on the faith, to grow in godliness, to, to carry out our responsibilities before God that he's entrusted to us. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how old or young you are. It really matters, are you growing and maturing in Christ? And so all of us, in some way, at some point, are a little further ahead of somewhere, someone else in, the, in their pursuit of Christ or uh, a little bit behind someone else in their pursuit of Christ. And we all can en encourage someone behind us and, and be encouraged by someone ahead of us. And, and again, that, that at times is going to look like formal, formally studying a book of the Bible together, working through some content together, some of our discipleship uh, pathways create ways to do that. And other times it's just informal. Hey, can we get coffee? Hey, can we catch up this week? Hey, let's get lunch. 
Like it, it's a desire to see one another and to help one another grow in Christ. And perhaps my favorite at Hebrews 3, I'm, I'm really just sharing all of this to say like, this is like the normal thing that the Bible calls us to do. Like this is an extraordinary, this is, this is Christianity 101, Christian formation 101 is that we are responsible for one another's holiness. And Hebrews 3 says it in perhaps uh, one of the most striking ways. It says in verse 13, uh, in Hebrews 3, verse 13, you can read the whole section, 12 through 19, but it says this in verse 13. Encourage each other daily while it's still called the day, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That's in the Bible. That's what we're called to do that. Think about what's required for that to be a possibility. What's necessary for us to encourage each other daily, while it's still called the day that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, is that we know one another, that we have space in each other's life. And then again, I'm not saying like, you're like, so are we texting everybody? You know, so, you know, we, we already got a few group texts going on. I can't get any more, I can't get any more notifications, all right? Um, and so I, I'm not suggesting that. Um, but I'm saying that we ought to be close enough to each other, enough space in one another's life where we can encourage each other. Enough intentionality when we see each other that, sure, we talk about the weather and the game, uh, and, and then we say, but how are you doing? How can I be praying for you? Maybe, it, maybe it's not over coffee outside in the lobby. Maybe it's a, a follow-up message or a phone call. Maybe it's in our small group. That, but there's room in our lives where we know each other that we can encourage each other. Like, who is going to look out for my holiness? Well, sure, I'm responsible. But according to Hebrews 3.13, so are you. Who's going to look out for your holiness? Yes, you have to obey God. Nobody can obey him for you. But I am responsible. The people around you and the body of Christ are responsible. We have this commitment to one another to help one another grow in holiness. And, and formative church discipline, if you will, or discipleship, is just that process in which we continually encourage each other to keep following Christ, to not give up, to keep following. When you grow weary and weak, somebody's there praying for you, encouraging you. When you sin, somebody's there to say, here's what the gospel says. God's grace is rich. He's rich in mercy and grace. He can forgive you. I need somebody to help me put into, into action a plan where I can, can put away some of these sinful habits and patterns in my life. Well, let me come alongside you. I need somebody that, that can just... Help me work through some discouragement that I'm going through, some difficulty that I'm facing with work or my family or with relationships or, or, or my school. I, I need people in my life that can help me. That's the, that's the pattern of being a church that disciples, that we have a commitment to one another that we might grow in holiness. Well, if, if formative church discipline is one side of the coin, the other side of the coin is restorative church discipline. And this is the corrective care that's given when a believer persists in unrepentant sin. You know, earlier I said that the charge that Christians uh, sometimes receive is that they're hypocrites. And the truth is all of us fail to live up to what we profess. Every single person. And Christians aren't people who don't sin. I'm not excusing sin. Here, here's, here's what distinguishes a Christian from someone else. A Christian knows what to do when they do sin. Christian knows that the response to sin isn't to cover it up, isn't to ignore it, isn't to run from it, isn't to lie about it, isn't to save face, but the response to sin is repentance. It's to turn from our sin. It's to confess it to God. It's to confess it to others. It's to, to turn from our sin that we might pursue Christ. 
and in the pattern uh, and in the kind of the ebb and flow of, of life and in the church, there are times when believers not only sin, that's true of all of us, and, and most sin, probably 99.5% of sin is dealt with in formative church discipline and discipleship, which we sin and we're like, man, uh, here's where I'm struggling, pray for me. Uh, or or, or we're, we're reading God's word and he convicts us of something and, and we confess it to him and we begin to pursue change. We begin to commit to our mind scripture that helps us to turn from anger or lust or, or, or greed or, uh, or resentment. We, we submit these things to Christ. That's the normal process. That's how most sin is dealt with. But there are times when believers, professing believers, persist in sin, meaning that they, they are happy to sin meaning that they don't want to turn from their sin and they don't want to receive correction from another believer to turn from their sin. And sometimes we think of this in large, kind of scandalous ways, perhaps of adultery, or, uh, or perhaps it's just somebody who says, you know what, forget it. I'm just, all the things that I've been avoiding, I'm just going to give myself and fully go all into it, living my way. Or, or maybe it's just totally removing themselves from believers and, and being unresponsive to believers. And there's this pattern that God gives us in Scripture. Because we're responsible for one another's holiness, restorative church discipline is the process in which the church responds to unrepentant sin. It responds to unrepentant sin that, that will culminate, that, that its ultimate culmination, if, if there's not responsiveness at some point, in removing a person from the membership of the church and from participation in the Lord's Supper, ultimately with the desire to see them return to Christ, to repent and return to Christ. This process of church discipline is also known as excommunication, uh, as uh, it's sometimes uh, uh, explained and uh, that's a real warm and fuzzy word, you know, that makes you feel good. Um, but uh, this, this process of restorative church, church discipline flows out of understanding God who disciplines us, but also flows out of our responsibility to each other. And at times, there are many scenarios in which believers persist in sin and are charged with hypocrisy. And there's churches that those believers belong to who are either unwilling or don't know how to pursue them in love, calling them back. Uh, to faith in Christ. And so when we talk about restorative church discipline and culminating and removing a person from the membership of the church and participation in the Lord's Supper, we're not forbidding them from coming to church. It's not, uh, it's, it's not saying they can't, uh, you can't talk to them. It's not uh, blacklisting someone. But it's instead, as we're going to see, it's, it's ultimately removing the church's affirmation of their faith. We're not saying they're not believers, but we're saying we can't affirm their believers based upon their unrepentant sin. And it's ultimately, I think a better way to think of excommunication is excommunioning, if you will, because we're saying, listen, if, if you are not willing to repent of your sin, the Lord's table is an invitation to repent. If you cannot repent, don't take the Lord's Supper because you will drink and eat judgment upon yourself. And it's a desire to help them see the seriousness of their sin and to respond to Christ. And we would say to the church, this brother or sister who has professed faith in Christ, who is unwilling to repent, love them by praying for them. And as you have the opportunity, uh, asking them to come back to Christ. And there are two passages that help us understand this. That's 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5 helps us understand the purpose of church discipline in Matthew 18, the process. We're going to look at them together. The first thing I want us to see in 1 Corinthians 5, if you turn there, this is Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth with dealing with a unique case of unrepentant sin uh, that is present in the church. 
And we're going to see that church discipline guards the witness of the church. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind of immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. It says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant should you be filled with grief and remove from your, remove from your congregation the one who did this. So the situation in Corinth is that in the church there is a uh, believer who uh, has committed sexual immorality and the church, Paul says, is actually tolerating it. it is, is actually turning their eye towards it or perhaps um, even, even uh, at some level uh, okay with it. He, he doesn't give us all the specifics that we have here, but it's clear enough this is an evident uh, situation in which the sin is, is public and prominent, and by Paul's statements here, apparently unrepentance is present uh, in the part of this person who's sinning in this way. And it appears perhaps that the uh, person that he's sinning with isn't a believer because she's not uh, spoken of in the same way and receiving the same discipline as the, the man that's spoken of here in verses 1 and 2. Notice how Paul says that they're tolerating sin that not even the Gentiles would tolerate. He's saying that in the church, you're tolerating what they won't even tolerate in the world. The Corinthians had a problem often with allowing the, the thinking and the values of the world to creep into their church and into the way they did church. And, and Paul is critiquing the way in which they've allowed uh, the world to influence them in, instead of the church influencing the world. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, I like to quote often on this one. He said, I believe that one of the reasons why the church of God at this present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. That was over 100 years ago. Times don't seem to change much. He said, put your finger on any page in, in the church's history uh, in which it has prospered, and, it will, and you will find a little marginal note reading, in this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. Here's the quote on the screen. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. You see, the way in which we guard the witness of the church is not actually by covering up church. You know the scandal of churches today? Whether Catholic or Protestant, they thought, that it would be so scandalous and so harmful to the witness of the church if they acknowledged the sin in their midst. It's the exact opposite of what God says. Acknowledge the sin. That's what guards the testimony of the church. It's when we tell the truth about sin and we respond to sin in the way we ought. Here's the way they responded in Corinth. They were arrogant. They were prideful. It says that they were perhaps prideful in spite of the sin or even because of the sin. But instead, the presence of sin should have humbled them. Paul says, ought you not, look at verse 2, ought you not have rather grieved? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and then take this action of removing from your congregation the one who did this? Should we not be broken by sin, Paul says? Should we not mourn over sin and repent of sin? Nowhere do we see the suggestion that the best way to protect the church is to cover up sin so people won't think badly of the church. Now, Jesus already told us what happens in that. He said, some stuff doesn't come out right now, but I bet you sooner or later it's going to come out. That's my translation of what Jesus said. <laughs> Don't cover up your sin. 
God will make it known. Instead, make it known so that God can restore. And what a, what a good reminder for us before I talk about the application to the church. How do we respond to sin? Are we dismissive of our sin? It's just a little bit. Are we grieved by our sin? Do we mourn it? Do we confess it? Do we turn from it? You see, when we tolerate sin, we have to ask ourselves, <clears throat> is our response to sin, does it tell the truth to or lie about God to the world? When we, when we think about our response to sin and, and how the world sees it, are we telling the world the truth or lying about what God is like? You see, when we don't exercise church discipline, what happens is we say, our sin isn't that important. We say the gospel isn't sufficient to really forgive and transform sin. We say that God really doesn't care about our sin that much. I mean, he cares, but like not that much. Don't freak out about it. You know, it's like, be cool, be chill, like it's okay. That's, that's the kind of vision that we give of God. We lie about who God is because that is definitively not who God is. Because God's response to our sin was to send his son to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and to rise victoriously from the dead. That's how serious he took sin. He put Christ on the cross in our place and for our sin. But when we do exercise church discipline, what we do is we tell the truth about the seriousness of sin. We say sin's a big deal because God says it is. We, we reveal the depth of our love for and our commitment to one another. If, if somebody was sick and, and, we, and we didn't get them help, we would, we would be saying we, we, don't, we don't love, we're not seeking their good. We have sin and in us, and if we don't care for one another, we're, we're dismissing one another, not loving one another. We show that God is holy and uncompromisingly so. We say that, yes, there are Christians who fail to live up to the name of Christ, but Christ hasn't ever failed to live up to who he is, and he never will. And when we, tell the, when we seek to confront sin and exercise church discipline, we also we say that there is a God who's ready to receive and forgive and restore. We say, don't hold on to your sin any longer, but come to Jesus. You may feel like you, you can't get loose of the grip of your sin, but once you come to Christ, you won't ever be out of the grip of his grace. A church should be a place that it's safe to confess your sin. But also, you can be confident that when you confess your sin, that you will be met with the grace and the mercy of God, who is able to forgive and restore. These two things ought to be true of Treasuring Christ Church. We ought to be able to confess we are great sinners. And secondly, we have a great Savior. Let us never forget those two things. We are great sinners, and we have a great Savior. Church discipline guards the witness of the church. Not by, not by avoiding it, not by covering up, or by protecting the church, but instead by revealing sin and lovingly pursuing a, a brother or sister in Christ to bring them to repentance. But on a personal level, church discipline pursues the restoration of the sinner. Three times Paul is going to say, when sin is present among you, you must remove uh, the one from you. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, the spirit may be, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
We'll come back to that one. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul's really serious about this. We have to confront sin. And obviously, again, we're talking about, to keep in mind here, we're talking about unrepentant sin that persists. It's not like, you know, somebody sinned once and we're like, all right, everybody get your gloves on. We're going to town. We're handing this person over to Satan tomorrow, you know? Like the process of church discipline takes time. It shouldn't be done rashly. It should be done prayerfully. It should be done uh, after much pursuit uh, of, a, of a, a brother or sister in Christ. But here Paul is saying that action has to be taken and the purpose behind it, look at verse 5, so that, he says in, a, in, a, in, in, this, in this way, hand over this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here, there at the end, you see that statement, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We see that this action is taken ultimately to pursue this person's restoration. It's to see them restored for them to, to that they might be saved and come back to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul tells us that you can be sure of this, if sin is the defining trait of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you come to know the grace and the mercy of Christ, <clears throat> you will inherit the grace of you will inherit the kingdom of God, and you will be transformed by the grace of God. Progressively, over time, not in a straight line, but true pursuit of Christ. And, and what, what Paul is saying here at this point, he's not saying, he's saying, I can't be certain that this person who sinned in this way is indeed saved. They may be, but they will, they will bring evidence of their salvation through repentance. And, and it's a reminder to us that our salvation, we say, say all the time, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Salvation is not dependent on your growth in holiness. So listen to me. If your growth in holiness isn't at the rate that you would like it to be, if you're not tracking at the rate you want to be, the trajectory isn't where you want it to be, it's looking more down. Uh, downward than upward in, in your growth. That does not necessarily mean, though, that you should be questioning your salvation. But here's what happens when we don't grow in holiness, when we persist in sin. We, we lack the assurance of our salvation. We lack the confidence of our salvation because we're not living in the grace that God has provided. And so this action that's taken here is to hand this one over to Satan. That sounds like an alarming thing. What has Satan got to do with this? Well, it says that we're to hand, he says, hand him over to Satan, not so that Satan could do something to the man, but by being outside of the church, being outside of the rule of Christ, this man might be brought to feel the weight of his sin and to turn back to Christ. And when, we, and when this action is taken to hand uh, this man over to Satan, to be removed from the, from the membership of the church. And we know that this is what Paul means because later in 2 Corinthians, he says you ought to receive him back among you. He, he, he calls him to be received back into the church. But the effect of this is so that uh, this, this man might feel the weight of his sin and, and, and the weight of God's judgment and be brought back to Christ. And this is the action of saying that so that his flesh might be destroyed. The flesh uh, in Scripture refers not to our skin, but to our sinful nature, our sinful disposition. And he's saying so that our flesh, which is bent on sin, if you want to read Galatians 5, look at the, the war between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, the flesh, which doesn't delight in God, doesn't obey God, must be put to death. In Galatians 5, 24, Paul says that all those who come to Christ crucify the flesh. Uh, they, they put to death the, the sinful desires and passions 
uh, and that's obviously an ongoing work, but, um, but Paul is saying so that this may happen so that this brother uh, might be brought back to Christ and might be repent and, and be restored. It's a serious business, exercising church discipline. The, the seriousness that Paul calls us to, as I mentioned earlier, shouldn't be done carelessly or in a rash manner, but it should be done with humility and prayerfulness. We just read Galatians 6.1, which says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person. Notice how it defines it. With a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you won't be tempted. So, so this, this process of seeking to restore uh, a brother or sister who's persisting in sin, what does that process look like? I mentioned earlier, it doesn't just mean that we're like, hey, tomorrow we're kicking this person out of church, you know? Um, but instead, there's a process that Matthew 18 lays out, and I want us to push pause here and flip over to Matthew 18 to understand uh, what, what, uh, what this process looks like. I want you to think about this. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. There are two times that Jesus mentions the church in the Gospels. He talks a lot about the people of God in various ways that apply to the church. There are twice that he mentions the church, the ecclesia, uh, which is the, the Greek word for the church. It's Matthew 16 that we looked at at the beginning of this sermon series when Jesus said that, uh, that the church is his. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the second thing he says about the church is here's how you should respond to sin. You think about that. Two things Jesus said. He said, the church is mine. And he said, sin is really serious. And you should think about how you respond to it. Verse 15 we, through 20, we see this, I'm going to say, four-step process of responding uh, to, to sin. The first step is private correction. Here in Matthew 18, it says, if you've been sinned against, uh, go and rebuke him in private. There's actually a little note you might see in your Bible that some of the earliest manuscripts uh, omit against you. Uh, so it just says if you've been sinned, if your brother sins, go and rebuke him in private. Um, <clears throat> one of the good things, and I like to say this often, one of the reasons we can trust the Bible is because we have so much evidence of what should be in the Bible through the manuscripts of the original languages. So the, the idea is that you have all these different manuscripts and, and collectively we're able to say this is, uh, this is the text, say, of Matthew. But there's this one manuscript that has the, the added phrase, against you. Um, and, and these are the kind, these, these variants, as they're called, are the kind of things that show up in the manuscripts. And so the encouragement here is, number one, we know it and we tell you. No one's like, no one's like this is the secret version of the Bible and there are other secrets that you don't know about. No, it's all there. Um, and we have more manuscripts of the Bible and it's Old Testament language, it's New Testament language, uh, than we do really of any other ancient source. Um, we can have great confidence in it, but the, the, the kind of variants that you have are like the spelling of names and whether or not the sin is against you or the sin is just in general. Um, there's enough confidence that we have that most likely the earliest and, and best manuscripts include against you, so it's, uh, it's included in your translation, but there's enough manuscripts that don't have it that they make a little note that you can sometimes see in your Bible that says some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Um, but it's not like one manuscript is like, hey, Jesus is God, and the other one is like, Jesus isn't God, and this is all a big goop, and they're you know pulling the wool over your eyes. Like it's not it's not like those type of changes. It's like do you spell Mark with a K or with a C? You know, do you uh, do you include against you or not against you? That's the kind of thing that you see happening here. Just to kind of bring note to it, but it's also an important point because we need to understand what it means to be sinned against. Sometimes the emphasis here is put upon when somebody sins against you. 
that, that we take this initiative to go pursue. Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone is caught in any kind of sin, we go and, and we lovingly seek to restore them. And, and, and so there's this call to, to evaluate if we've been sinned against or if a brother or sister has sinned. And I say this often, anytime we think about correcting sin, you ought to ask yourself, can love cover this offense? Scripture repeatedly says that love is to cover a multitude of offenses. Sometimes some of the uh, relational, everyday type of sins, uh, we would do well to allow love to cover the offense. Love should never be an excuse to cover abuse of any kind. I'll say that and just reiterate that. Uh, and passages like this by some people uh, can be used to, to say, well, you ought to, you ought to forgive me, you ought to love me. Uh, and not address real real harm that's being done. Let no one tell you that. Uh, but in the everyday flow of life, the relational type sin, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, can love cover this offense? And if not, if the answer is no, then here Matthew 18 says that we are to go and address this sin lovingly and humbly with our brother or sister. Now, a favorite verse in, in this conversation is Matthew 7. You guys remember Matthew 7, Jesus says, do not judge. But he says, he actually telling us not to be judgmental, uh, but instead he actually teaches us the right way to judge. The right way to judge is to look at yourself first. Take the log out of your own eye, Jesus says, and here's what he says, and then you'll be able to help your brother address the speck in his eye. He doesn't say, just focus on the log in your own eye and don't worry about other people. Live and let live, man. Just focus on yourself. Jesus does not say that. He says, look at yourself honestly and humbly. And then you can help your brother or sister. The implication is that we humbly address ourselves so that we might help our brother or our sister. And so when we approach someone about sin, we seek to address our own heart and then seek to address theirs. When we go to someone, when someone's sin becomes known, as in the case of 1 Corinthians 5 or some other situation, you see someone's sin, you go to them out of love because you don't want to assume, you don't want to dismiss their uh, their sin, and you also want to approach with a posture of humility and a desire for their spiritual good. You're not coming at them. If you love confrontation, you might need to check your heart, right? So if you don't love confrontation, you're in a good spot, but approach someone with humility that says, I, here's what I see. I don't know if I'm seeing this right. Tell me what's going on. And at times, you'll often perhaps hear more of what's really going on, more of the struggle that's there, more of the stuff that's present. And, and like, Nine times out of ten, this is where the process of church discipline stops. Because you go to that person, you say, here's the deal. And they say, man, yeah, I, there's no excuse for why I did that to you. I'm sorry. Or you're right. Here's what I'm going through. And I'm not handling it well. And I'm doing all these things. And I need some help. Boom. Process of discipline formally, in that sense, ends. And you seek to restore and help your brother or sister in Christ. The second step, though, if that person doesn't receive that correction is to, to seek small group clarification, not like in your small group, but with a small group of people, uh, to take two or three along with you. And Jesus does this to protect the person who has sinned as well as the one who has confronted the issue. Throughout the scriptures, it requires multiple witnesses for a charge to be brought against someone. There's good reason for that, right? Like it's not just he said, she said. There's, there's, there's need for um, multiple people sometimes to, to bring light to the issue. So it protects the one who sinned as well as the one who's confronted the issue. Maybe you think they sinned and you went to them and it didn't go well. And then you share with a brother or sister, not in gossip, but out of love to pursue him. And they say, bro, I don't, I don't, know, that's, I don't, know, I don't know if you're reading it right. I don't know if you're seeing the situation clearly. So you need somebody perhaps to speak into your life or to say, no, you're not crazy. That, that is concerning. Let's, let's lovingly 
uh, pursue them. I had a friend when I was uh, fresh out of college and seminary in a small group. I was with a small group of guys, and we had this guy in our small group who, like, just disappeared. Wouldn't respond, wouldn't call back, uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't basically respond to any of us. And it came to light that he had started seeing uh, someone, and uh, they were kind of moving in some unhealthy ways, and uh, it was our guys' night, and the guys in our small group, because we had all been praying and concerned, and uh, we just decided we weren't going to meet that night. We were going to go over to his house. Um, we're like 23, maybe. Um, and like five of us just go over to his house. Not, not to like stop him from doing anything, but just to say, hey, bro, we love you. Like, we're here. We ain't going anywhere. Um, and we meet him, and he's, in his, he's walking out. Uh, we didn't know if he would even be there, but he was walking out to his car to, to go um, be with his, uh, his girlfriend. And I don't even remember what we said, but it was basically like, bro, we love you, man. I don't know what's going on, but, like, you can't run from God. You can't run from us. Like, what, talk to us, man. Like, where are you at? And, and I just remember that night we wept together. We prayed together. He said, man, I, I know I'm running from God. I want this. And it seems to be in conflict with what God's calling me to do. And, and then that just began a process of being able to encourage and come alongside him and, and support him and walk with him through some things. And um, <clears throat> we... He was one one of the men in my in my wedding uh, a few years later, and I just we've kept in touch. And like a while back, got married and has his first kid and is following the Lord. And I just think back, like just collectively, I don't know whose idea it was, but we just said we're going to go pursue our brother. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how it's going to go. We didn't come with any agenda other than to say, "Hey, we love you." And God used that <clears throat> to, uh, to to bring about restoration. And, and and also at this point, I'll, I'll say this, when, when pursuing church discipline, it should involve as few people as possible, as needed. And the goal is to seek their repentance. And I said this earlier, so that when, when the person comes to a point of saying, you're right, I'm running from the Lord, I need to address that. That's, that's as far as it goes. Like, it's the whole point is to seek repentance and return to Christ. It's not to exact some punishment upon someone. But it's to lovingly bring them back to Christ. It's like a shepherd who goes after a sheep. That shepherd goes after the sheep until he can get them. But once he gets them, a good shepherd isn't going to beat the sheep and parade the sheep in front of all the others and say, look, if you run, this is what's going to happen. Like, that's not the point. The point is to bring back the sheep and restore the sheep. That's what God's calling the church to do. But if that small group admin, that clarification isn't received, then it says, tell it to the church. I think there's two parts here. One, you take it to the church leaders, and then eventually it's taken to the whole church. The church leaders uh, in practice, I think, are going to be once probably already involved by step two, perhaps. However, if not, the pastors are called to shepherd the church, and they ought to, if they aren't already, understand what's going on and pursue uh, this brother or sister in Christ so that they can know uh, that they're known and they're cared for and they're being called to turn from their sin. But if that isn't received from the church leaders at some point amongst the members of the church, when they gather, as Paul says, it's to be told to the whole church. And after not receiving correction from pastors, not receiving a small group, a personal uh, confrontation, this, this comes before the members of the church who have committed in responsibility to one another. And it would go something like this. I'm going to use Harold. I don't know if anybody's named Harold here, but I'm going to reference Harold. So if it's you, I'm not talking about you. We would say something like, our brother Harold has sinned. And at, the, at this point, maybe it's a year has gone by now uh, in which this has taken place. 
uh, has been unwilling to repent, even after repeated reproofs from a brother or sister, by several, even by the pastors. Therefore, in light of what the Bible teaches in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, we're asking as a congregation that you pray for Harold to repent. We're asking that God would lead him uh, to come back to Christ. If you have a relationship with him, in your relationship with him, encourage him to, to return to Christ. At this point, we're not recommending him be removed from the church. We're bringing it to the whole church so collectively can, we can pray for and pursue Harold's repentance. And that if after some time Harold continues to be unresponsive, then at that point we would need to recommend further action and remove him from the membership of the church and participation in the Lord's Supper. So pray for, pursue them as you have the opportunity, um, and, and let's ask God to work in the midst of this. And then the final step that would be taken after taking it to the church um, is that we would let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to us. This would be church excommunication. This officially handing him over, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, apparently the sin was so public and so evident uh, and known, and the unrepentance was so known that we're kind of at this juncture. We're at step four in 1 Corinthians 5. Whereas Matthew 18 gives us the backstory of, of how typically we would get there. And at Church Act Communication, what we would be saying is that we are, as a church, recommending and we are, we are taking action to remove Harold from our membership, no longer considering him a brother or sister in Christ, praying that he would come to repentance and trust in Christ. We would invite Harold to join our meetings, to, to sit under the preaching of God's word. We would, we would welcome him to be open to, to others pursuing him, to the meeting with the pastors. We have an open door policy for him to come. But we're saying that because of unrepentance of sin, we do not see um, <clears throat> evidence of, uh, of your faith in Christ, and we call you to, to repentance. That would be the action taken. And this is, what, this is, <clears throat> this is the, the serious action that is taken in these circumstances because God is holy, sin is serious, and we're responsible for one another's growth and holiness. Like 99.9% of sin is dealt with in formative church discipline and the discipleship process of the church. But a church must take serious what the scriptures say about addressing unrepentant sin through the process of church discipline, and this is what it looks like. And we do so for his good, for the restoration of the sinner, but also for, for us as a church. First Timothy 5 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Not in the sense of like fearful, uh, terrified, but in the sense of a, a, a reality of our need for holiness, that we would see ourselves as no different than Harold, as capable of what Harold just did, that we ourselves are capable of that too and need to guard our own heart. So the church disciplines, church discipline guards the witness of the church, pursues the restoration of the sinner, and protects the purity of the church. And, and if you look at 1 Corinthians 5, to flip back there, we see that Paul encourages this action of, of addressing um, and removing this man from the church so that he might be restored. But he says, your boasting isn't good. Do you not know, this is verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The context is the Passover. He's talking about leavened and unleavened bread, that they were to have unleavened bread as God redeemed them that night, and they left Egypt, and, uh, and he's using leaven as this reference to sin. He says two things um, <clears throat> about, uh, about our sin that's, that's important here when we think about um, 
the, the significance of the purity uh, of the church. Uh, he says a little sin is a big deal, um, that, that no sin is, is small. Um, and, and even more, he says, that we are to be what we are. Um, when we think about the purity of the church, Paul says we have this responsibility to one another. No sin is so small. Just like a little leaven makes the whole batch rise. Uh, we were baking bread uh, here recently. Emily and I joke about when we preach about something, somehow it often applies, ends up applying to our life. We don't have any church discipline going on in our house, but we are baking bread. And I know that for the bread to bake, bake there's a little leaven that has to be put in it uh, in order for it to, to rest and rise so that it cooks. So in the same way, Paul is saying just a little bit of sin can bring ruin to the whole church. Just a little bit of sin that's unaddressed can bring ruin to the whole church. And so we're to take action and address our sin. But here's why we're to take action and address our sin. Because we actually are already made holy. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. As indeed you are. And then he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new one. Get rid of the sin that's among you so that you may be holy because you already are unleavened you already are holy we've already been made pure how have we been made pure we've been made pure through christ's sacrifice he is the passover lamb just like the blood had to be put on the doorposts of the houses of the egypt of the israelites so that god's judgment would pass over them it's the blood of jesus our passover lamb that leads him to pass over our sin to forgive us and to, to make us holy, Christ has died for us. He has paid the price for our sin. He has made us holy. So to, to ourselves persist in sin or to tolerate persistence in sin is to be inconsistent with who we are. But God has made the church pure. We are to pursue the purity of the church. Paul says, be what you are because of the death of Christ for your sins. You've been made holy, so live holy. You've been made holy, so don't tolerate sin but instead apply the cross of Christ to your sin. Today we're going to conclude by taking the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> I'm going to invite uh, our band to come down, um, and they're going to play softly. Um, <clears throat> and when we take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and to remember that his blood was shed and his body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and God has given the Lord's Supper to the church to practice in an ongoing way to remind us that we are indeed uh, his people. He has made us pure. Uh, he is the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. Therefore, we are to observe the feast. We are to partake in the feast, both of the Lord's table, but also the feast of, of a relationship with God. And we do that as a church when we take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is intimately connected to, uh, to even for us, uh, what it means for us to be a local church, to, to practice both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, and here at TCC, we welcome anyone who is a believer, who has professed faith in Christ, and has taken that step of, of believer's baptism and partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Here in a moment, the plates will be passed. But usually I call us to reflect a little bit uh, on our own lives and hearts because the scriptures teach us to, to not take the Lord's Supper hastily, uh, but to, to take it uh, in a manner that's reflecting on our own sin, perhaps confessing sin. Uh, but today I wanted for us to read our church covenant. If you're a member here at TCC, we, we covenant together by affirming this church covenant. Uh, when we present new members, we, uh, every member is, is affirming this covenant together. We affirm this covenant. 
we don't always do this as we take the Lord's Supper, but thinking about church discipline and thinking about the responsibility we have to one another, I wanted today to read our church covenant in preparation for us taking the Lord's Supper. Um, and so as I read, I, I pray that you'll be encouraged and reminded of what we've committed to one another and committed to God as we take the Lord's Supper today. Um, here's our church covenant says this, having repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus Christ and having been baptized after the confession of my faith in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I now join in covenant together with Treasuring Christ Church. In all of life, we will aim to glorify and delight ourselves in God. Individually and corporately, we will seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness rather than pursue our self-interest. We will make every effort to live in a manner worthy of our calling, to be exemplary in our conduct and treat one another with love, respect, and forgiveness. We commit to avoid sin, to abstain from sexual immorality, and any practice which brings division to the church or jeopardizes our faith. We will watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, and to show grace in our speech, to be slow to take offense, and to be ready for reconciliation without delay. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and when necessary, the loving exercise of church discipline. We commit ourselves to willingly submit to the leaders of the church and will give joyfully, regularly, and sacrificially to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. We will conduct our relationships and families according to the pattern laid out in Scripture to honor biblical marriage and to raise our children in the instruction of the Lord. We will commit to faithfully advance the gospel and make disciples in our city and abroad, living out our faith in all of life, sending to the nations those among us, and readying ourselves to go whenever and wherever God calls us. If we move away from Treasuring Christ Church, we will, as soon as possible, join with another church. We can fulfill these responsibilities of our covenant and join in mission with the local church committed to God his people, and the gospel. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This is what we've committed to one another. If you're thinking about joining TCC, this is what we commit to you and what we would ask you to commit to us. It's a joyful thing to be the people of God, to do the work that God has called us to, to love one another as God has called us to. Even in the hard parts of addressing our own sin and addressing sin in our midst, it's a reminder that we have a God who loves us and a God who's called us to love one another so that we may be like him. So <clears throat> I want to just pray now.